So, uh, how'd you enjoy the movie? Well, I think we should tell everybody what movie we enjoyed this week. Well, everybody, welcome to the Film Club Podcast, where the film movie couple talks about movies. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And we are talking about... The Killing. Even though I keep wanting to call it The Killers, that's another movie. Yes. And one of my favorite bands. Yes. This is The Killing, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Your uh, lord and savior. Uh, yes, my my uh, film Jesus. And this is part of our November series where we're watching movies you've never seen before. The Killing is, for me, the last film in Kubrick's canon that I've never seen. So, how sad are you today? Oh, uh, you know, this is a... This is a harsh tragedy i uh, feel horrible about uh not having any more kubrick to watch but i gotta break that cherry eventually and uh it was a pretty good movie it's a pretty, pretty good cherry as it were it was a good poppin good good old poppin also those poppin videos on like reddit where people pop like um blisters or zits or whatever skeeve the fuck <laughs> out of me oh my god i mean they're interesting but after a while, I get super grossed out. I well, have to, like... It, well, the thing is, it's like, they're interesting. Like, a train wreck is interesting. Yeah. Like, oh my god, that's so gross. Oh, why can't I look away? And, like, sometimes they just come on in, like, the random feed of yeah. popular or whatever. And you scroll past and you're like, oh god, what? Oh, oh god, why are you doing that? And you end up watching, like, five of them in a row. The worst is, like, if you're on Instagram watching reels, if you watch too many of a certain type of reel, it'll just keep showing up. So I had that issue with, like, the, the pimple popping stuff, and I was just like, yeah, I, I don't want to watch all of these when I'm trying to, like, eat. I gotta not watch these anymore on here, because it's just... Ugh. Oh, yeah. But still fascinating. Indeed. Another fascinating thing is uh, this movie. Yeah, I mean, this whole month is fascinating, because I think we picked movies that both of us haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, at least so far we have. And this movie is also cool because this is kubrick's like third film like right after this he does paths of glory which yeah. is i think most everyone considers is the first kubrick kubrick film like that's where the canon starts of oh after this he just makes masterpieces yeah and the killing is interesting because it's a very low budget it's a very b picture mm -hmm. it's a noir film and you see a bit of that kubrickian stylings you see later on but it's not completed yet yeah but we're gonna have the kubrick conversation today dean's gonna split into two and have you know a very strong passionate argument oh i'm gonna try but uh, and i'll that... try to keep the two of them from killing each other <laughs> one's the evil dean the other is the good dean but um because we're covering stanley kubrick right yes and i think you know he is considered one of the best american directors of like the last 60 years, 70 years, all time, maybe? I was going to say all time. But what what's your relationship to the to the Kubrick canon, you know? Like, the films you've seen of his, like, what, what are your thoughts on the guy? Well, I mean, I enjoy Stanley Kubrick movies. Um, dating you, Stanley comes up quite a lot. <laughs> so for a while, it's like, yeah, I can't watch a Stanley Kubrick movie because it's going to be, did you know, boo? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I know. I know, yeah. but, you know, I, I enjoy his films. Um, even this one, I wasn't anticipating it. I'd never heard of it, and I was kind of like, wow, it's going to be interesting to see Stanley Kubrick do film noir mm -hmm. after seeing, you know, the range of Kubrick. And I was very impressed with what we got, but I'm still holding that The Shining is my favorite Kubrick movie. 
yeah, The Shining is a pretty strong pick of favorite Kubricks. Mine's 2001. And, you know, I'm from that film schooly thing where there's always that one kid in your film class that's obsessed with Stanley Kubrick for some reason, and I was that guy. Yes. But it's one of those things where I just enjoyed all the movies I saw of him. I legit was like, oh, all the fucking 13 movies he made are all enjoyable and i like all of them and that's kind of why i got in on that because people even like steven spielberg hasn't made uh an entire filmography of good movies like there's a badder movie in there didn't you tell me recently that you had read that steven spielberg like snuck into a 2001 screening i mean not like snuck in but no yeah that's it was you know like some random city was having a screening and he was doing like a press kit or a press tour and he was just kind of like (laughs) Yo, I, I got, like, a couple of hours. Let me just uh, kind of slide into the back. It wasn't even that um, James Bondy. What it was was a movie theater in New York, right? Guy goes in and he's, you know, oh, they're showing 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever. Okay, I'm going to get in and get the second showing. And as he's, you know, getting his stuff out, the usher is like, hey, dude, look. And as he turns, the town car drives away. He's like, what was it? He's like, that was Steven Spielberg. He showed up, bought a ticket, and just sat and watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, the showing right before you, and then he left. But that's, like, just an interesting thing. Because Spielberg and Kubrick were really good friends when Kubrick got um, older. Was he? Yeah, yeah. That's why Stanley Kubrick made AI. AI was going to be Stanley Kubrick's film. Mm -hmm. And Spielberg made it after Kubrick died. Yeah. As kind of like, oh, homage, you know, he's my friend. And Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, was there when he was kind of developing it. So I'll make the movie for him. Yeah. It's kind of famous. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those famous stories of the lost Kubrick movies. The movies he tried to make that never got around to making. Mm -hmm. Napoleon's another one. Um, There's AI. I think he almost made The Exorcist. He was in talks for that. And there's like, there's a lot of movies that Kubrick almost directed and never got around to. Hmm, Interesting. But I was kind of surprised because I know you love Barry Lyndon so much. Oh, it's a amazing movie that's why i was like i wondered if that over time would be you know your your crown jewel but it's cool to see that 2001 is still your end-all be-all movie oh yeah i mean barry linden's hilarious that movie is a lot funnier than i think people get honestly stanley kubrick's a lot funnier than i think people realize because a lot of his movies have this weird dark sense of humor even this movie has kind of a weird dark sense of humor yeah but, uh, yeah, so, The Killing, where do we want to start? Well, I think you should tell everybody what the film's about, because if I do it, it's going to be a very fast synopsis. <laughs> well, don't worry, I actually have the box with me this time. I'm wow. going to just, re- just read the back, because this is a, an old school DVD that tells you everything about the movie. Mm-mm-mm. When ex-con Johnny Clay, played by Sterling Hayden, says he has a plan to make a killing. Everybody wants to be in on the action, especially when the plan is to steal $2 million in a racetrack robbery scheme in which no one will get hurt. But despite all their careful plotting, Clay and his men have overlooked one thing. Sherry Petty, played by Mary Windsor, a money-hungry, double-crossing dame who's planning to make a financial killing of her own, even if she has to wipe out Clay's entire gang to do it. And the plot synopsis makes this sound like the most generic noir film of all time. But in reality, it's Reservoir Dogs. 
yes, it's Reservoir Dogs. It's a little bit of Pulp Fiction. It's like it's it, just it's got a dame in it. It's time. got a dame in it. That and that's kind of the funny thing about this movie is you can so see this movie influenced a lot of Tarantino's early stuff. That non-linear storytelling, how there's a whole, like, crime scheme going on. Like, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, I think, does exactly the heist in this movie. I mean, even uh, the the clown mask. That's the same clown mask from The Dark Knight with the Joker. Yeah. I was so excited to see the flower box with the ribbon on it and the guns in it. And I'm like, <laughs> how many times have we seen that in movies? Oh, yeah. And it's I was like, like the so same this is... looking one as, like, in Terminator 2. Yeah, so I was like... Wow, that's where this originated from. But, you know, the movie is a pretty by-the-numbers noir film, yeah. right? We have... People uh, in suits, people in hats. People in suits, hats. People kind are of, getting smacked around. Yeah, we have people getting smacked around. It's a crime movie. All of our characters are morally gray at best. There's, there's at least one Johnny in the cast, because there's got to be a Johnny in a noir movie. Yes, there's a Johnny in the noir movie. and I was waiting here, and she? Oh, for God's <laughs> sakes. <laughs> and it's a heist movie, and we're going through all these tropes of a classical noir. And this comes out in 56. Yes. And I, the noir genre kind of peters out in, like, the early 60s, right? Yes. Yeah, so it, it's just one of those things to see a movie in the mid 50s that is just the perfect distillation of this is literally the most by the numbers noir film you could possibly make and it's made by stanley kubrick and there's no you'll never catch me coppas yes boo we know you know all the tropes of noir movies you love them i do i really do <laughs> well what why do you enjoy noir movies so much they're fun, and I love black and white movies, so it's cool to see from a photographer's perspective, you know, the lighting. Lighting is such a big key element in noir films, and this one, it's it's pretty balanced because we have a lot of this happening during the day, hmm. and I love that even though this is a noir movie, it feels like a Stanley Kubrick movie, and it's like we're getting, you know, scenes twice because we're seeing how things are actually playing out in reality, but then we're seeing all the the planning behind it and it's like oh, okay so that's why this is going this way this way this way but yeah, noir is just a lot of fun people are dressed cool there's cool cars there's action and yeah we get that in this movie i, I like how you mentioned that you know this feels like a kubrick movie because you see the planning and all that stuff mm -hmm. and that's something that comes up in a lot of Kubrick movies. I feel like he's really obsessed with process. Yeah. Like, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, we see everything played out in full when they're going out on the spacewalks. We see the whole process of things happening. And even in Dr. Strangelove, famously, mm -hmm. it shows the entire process of how something like this happens and how it can go wrong. Yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing about a lot of Kubrick's career when you look at this movie is no matter all this planning, you know, you make these this entire environment as perfect as possible, and then chaos happens. Ensues. Ensues, exactly. That's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. It's like, oh, we make this perfect machine, this perfect planet, but then something goes wrong, and then the chaos that happens after that. That's a lot of his movies. And also, a note on the lighting in this movie. Yeah, the lighting in this movie is really, really good. To the point that Kubrick decided to just fire his sound recordist so he could light the movie the way he wanted to. 
Hey, I mean, it'd be like that sometimes. You never know. I mean, lighting is not my strong suit as a photographer. Mm. But... Well, you do, like, street photography most of all, so you oh. use a lot of natural lighting and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's kind of my go-to, but, you know, working in a studio, you have to know how to work with lights. Mm. And, I mean, there's just some people, it's like uh, when you help your dad, like, fix the engine of the car and you could be holding the, the flashlight, and he's like, no, no, let me do it, and then he takes over and it just completely lights up. The engine block. That's how some people are. When you're holding the flashlight, it's like a dime size beam of light. And when he grabs it, some of the whole thing is illuminated perfectly. Angels are singing. And it's just like, how? And it's the same with photography and filmmaking. You know, some people, they just got that natural flair for lighting. And this this movie, it's, you know, it's beautifully lit. And it's not all at night, like a lot of noir movies. Mm. It's like, you know, it's interesting to see a noir during the day. And it's like, we get that contrast night and day, but everything's usually happening during the day. Yeah, because it's a during daylight seventh, robbery. During the seventh race. Yes. The, well, the thing is, is I wanted to bring this up that, you know, this is still like early Kubrick, right? Mm-hmm. And at this point, he made Fear and Desire, which he completely disowned. Like, I've seen it. It's like, it's a rough movie. It's not horrible, but it you can tell it was like made pretty cheap pretty quick and it wasn't like a fleshed out idea and i've seen like kiss me deadly i think is the name of his next movie Mm -hmm. after that that's a movie he made before this and that one is still like kind of amateurish like a lot more the ideals are there the photography is a little bit better yeah but then he makes the killing here and could you imagine you're on that set and you're like setting up everything your director is this no-name guy, he made, like, two movies that are fine, but they're not good, and he's like, no, I got a vision. Sound recordist, you're off the movie. We're just gonna do the whole thing in post, and we're just gonna light it exactly how I want, Mm -hmm. and, oh, cinematographer guy, if you question my decision on lenses again, I will fire you on this set. Yeah. Like, what, what in the world is that set like? When you're working with somebody who has this really precise vision for this movie, to the point that... Confusing. Confusing, right? Yeah, because clearly you can't see what the other person is thinking. And even if you're that person coming up with this concept, it's hard to describe it. You have to be, like, the one that creates it. Then you can show people, this is what I was going for. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine that people were probably a little confused, but it's like... He is Kubrick. So it's like, you, you gotta... Well, this is before we get the myth of Kubrick. This yeah. isn't like I know, 80, this is... 80 take Kubrick. No, this is, you know, Kubrick, you know, climbing the, the Jedi steps. And it's just, you know, also, this was filmed in 24 days. Which is like insane for a Kubrick movie. Because like famously, what is it? Almost every movie he ever made went like... A hundred plus days over yeah, budget. Yeah, they, they went months over. What I I think it was um, uh, Full Metal Jacket. The guy he he got in the movie to play Eight Ball. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Look, I'll do it if it's only eight weeks." And Kubrick's like, "I can do eight weeks, not a problem." But the guy was like, "Nah, I'm not gonna do it because Kubrick says eight weeks. That means like sixteen weeks, and I got to do something else." So he goes off and does another movie. Yeah. But in the time he went off, <laughs> he filmed the movie. The movie got released, it premiered, and at that point, they were only halfway through production on Full Metal Jacket. Because that movie went two 
years over schedule. And this is like 24 days in and out. Totally fine. And it's not like this is, you know, a really light movie where it's like, well, I could see where, you know, 24 days. It's like, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of action. And it's like, you got all of this meshed into 24 days. Oh, especially the stuff at the... During the heist. During the heist. Because, yeah, he's reusing a lot of the same sets over and over again. Which, you know, that's how yeah. you save save time on on um, shooting. But it's like, he's going over all these things, like, multiple times. And you can tell it's like, well, there's so many actors and extras you have to place and put in specific ways to get certain shots. And also, all these sets are being... Build, and it's a really fascinating thing to see how the movie kind of gets constructed mm-hmm. in such a precise way. Because the movie is not very long. No, I think it was an hour 30. Is this a tight 90? Yeah, yeah, it, it's an hour 29 minutes. So yeah, hour 30. Which, again, is kind of weird because... The plot was, you know, we described it, doesn't sound dense. It's, it's a heist movie, yeah. right? But when it actually plays out, there's a lot going on to make this daylight robbery seem as complicated and 4D chest as humanly possible. And especially when, you know, it's not just a heist. It's, you know, these guys trying to score some cash. You know, we get to see the problems and the reasons why these men are banding together to steal this money you know mm-hmm. we, we've got one his wife's sick he's trying to take care of her uh johnny's trying to provide for his girl his new wife he wants to get married because he's just you know come off of a five-year prison sentence and it's just like you're seeing okay you know this is the reason why i need the money this is why i'm doing it and we've got what's his name with his wife the kind of uh, oh george petty played by elijah cook you should know him he's in house on haunted hill and oh, no, I know. Believe me, when I saw him, I was like, I know you. <laughs> That's the thing. There are so many actors in this movie that I recognize as, oh, you were that guy that was in like 80 movies in mm-hmm. the 50s. Uh, who is it? Uh, Timothy Carey. He shows up again in Paths of Glory, and I heard somebody describe him as the Nick Cage of the noir films because he was, he was an insane person. He was absolutely crazy he would do the weirdest things on set and do the weirdest things with his performances but you see him in the movie and he's fucking captivating i mean i, I kind of want to see him now you know with a nick cage accent you know running through this movie <sighs> do you want to know my favorite timothy carey story sure so this is from pass of glory and he's shooting the film right yeah. now he wants to drum up press for the movie because he's like, oh, I'm doing a really good job. Like, I want to mm-hmm. I want to help the movie. So he stages his own kidnapping. And I do mean, like, his own <laughs> kidnapping. He goes off and disappears in, like, the fucking European woods for, like, three days. They can't fucking find him. And then he wanders off into the highway and tells the cops, I was kidnapped. And I was trying... <laughs> Literally stages it. The, the police figure out what the fuck happened. Yeah. And they're like, we're going to charge you for falsifying a kidnapping and all this other shit. And Kubrick is like, oh, for God's sakes, pays his bail. Yeah. Gets him on set. The, I mean, the last take they need of him, Kubrick fires him on the spot. He goes like, and that's, that take was good. All right, cool. Tim, you're fired. Get the fuck off my set. And he's like, life happens. And (laughs) 
he again insane absolutely insane i want to drum up press let's commit a felony probably shouldn't have left his house behind how i did it shouldn't have left it behind yeah gotta get rid of all the evidence uh but yeah but there's there's a lot of good actors in here like sterling hayden's another one who i feel like was made in a laboratory to be like we need the perfect leading man for b movies but is also as close to charlton heston as we can get and then a star was born. And then a star was born. <laughs> yeah, because he did a lot of these movies, uh, westerns. He was in Johnny Guitar, I yeah. think. That's the other. That's the other western I know from him from. He was Where in he played Johnny, Johnny Guitar. Guitar. Yeah. He was in Doctor Strangelove as mm-hmm. the general, and it, he's one of these actors where you see him in this movie, and he talks like he's in a fifties noir movie, mm-hmm. and then you have somebody like Timothy Carey who's playing this really weird he's talking through his teeth for some reason which was his choice because he was like well i'm dead all i'm gonna die in the movie so i'm dead already so i'm gonna talk like i'm already suffering from rigor mortis that is literally his his thing and sally cooper was like okay you stand over there and you do that i'm gonna go back over to my chair over here exactly (laughs) and you have elijah cook who's nervous is so nervous but he's giving such this naturalistic like hang dog beaten down by life performance and then and then you have mary windsor who is owning <laughs> every fucking scene she, she is was in hilarious oh yeah i was dying you know she's like oh yeah i cooked you you know steak dinner with asparagus and potatoes he's like really i don't smell it she's like well if you go down to the market you will they have all the ingredients there and i was like you have ah! used that line on me before i have not yes, how you, you lie uh but and that's the thing. She is playing. Uh, she is playing the wife character. She's the femme fatale of the movie. Exactly. She's the femme fatale, and she's not giving these one-liners or these insults to Elijah Cook in a way where it's like, oh, that's just like you know, noir snappy dialogue mm-hmm. or whatever. She is de- she is tearing this man soul down. Mm-hmm. She is saying some cruel things to this man. I love it. It's so good. No, I mean, I love her scenes. I wasn't expecting her. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, it's going to be centered around the guys. And it's like, oh, no, we get a good, you know, while that we get to see Sherry in the movie. And she gets to, you know, just knock her lines out of the park. Yeah. And I love how when she dies in the movie, she has to go out insulting Elijah Cook one last time. Well, yeah. God damn. It's like, you know, you may have killed me, but I'm going to burn you one more time before I go. So good. I'm I'm sad that her career wasn't, like, bigger. Because she seems like the perfect femme fatale for these. Oh, yeah. But she had kind of a rough go. Because she was, like, apparently, like, a really tall actress. Mm-hmm. Like, you see her in the movie, and she's, like, a head taller than Elijah Cook. And, I mean, that also, you know, helps with showing that, you know, she's above him. And, you know, he's kind of like, you know, yes, dear. Okay, dear. He's so dear. beaten down. Mm-hmm. She's this physically imposing presence over him. Yeah. And yeah, because I think she was like almost six foot tall. Wow. Yeah, or she was she was between like five ten and six feet. Like she was she was a tall lady. Yeah. And this is also back in like the nineteen fifties where leading men were five eight. James Cagney famously five foot four. Yeah, it, it's always something to go back and like read up on like old movie stars, and you mm-hmm. think you know, oh, these larger than life stars, and it's like you you were five five. 
Yeah. Uh, how tall is your leading lady? Like 4'11"? What is it? Cary Grant, I think famously, never weighed over 140 pounds his entire life. Wow. And you see and you see him and you're like, no, that's a like proportion to do that yeah. looks kind of athletic. And you're like, he's only 140 pounds? Like, that's insane. He was, what was he, only like 5'2"? What the hell? But that's but that's the thing. So that's why her career wasn't super yeah. big. But she's giving like a star performance in here. Oh yeah. At least enough to be like, oh, we can have you be the femme fatale in every MGM B noir film for the I'd next wa- ten years. I'd watch it. I'd never heard of her before or seen a performance from her before. I would have watched all of them because she was just so hilarious and she just had the look. She looked like a femme fatale, and mm. it was just like. I appreciate this so much. Oh, yeah. It's not like, you know, like, oh, yeah, they're really trying to, you know, give her edges and, you know, get rid of the softness. It's like, no, she had it. Oh, it's it's good. Oh, is there... Okay, there's only one other person in the cast I wanted to point out, and that was Maurice, the big guy. The, oh, the wrestler. <laughs> okay. Because he's yes. played by Cola Querinani. He is, he is a Georgian actor... That who, that looks, you know, more or less right. Yeah, he, he I I know this. He was a Georgian actor. He was a professional wrestler back in the day, wrestling under the name Nick the Wrestler. And he got the part in the movie because him and Stanley Kubrick were in the same chess club together in New York. Oh yeah, I yeah. I read about that. Yeah, so like you see him in the movie and he's hanging out at the chess club and he speaks in these kind of like Kind of like long, really intellectual monologues. Like when uh, Sterling Hayden's character comes up and he's like, I got this big heist. And he's like, Clay, you must understand. You must be good and happy with mediocrity. We are not men who strive for the mountains. We are men who must be happy with our station in life. And that is only where you can find true peace. And then we get a WWE match. And then we get a WWE match. Sorry, sorry. WWF match. Well, we, we gotta te- take it. Technically, it's a WWWF match. This is in the 50s. Yeah. But that's the thing. Okay, ECW. <laughs> just Jesus. But that's the thing because Kubrick just like cast him in the movie because that's exactly who he was in real life. Yeah. He was just this big burly wrestling dude who just played chess. And yeah, I he think... is so convincing in the action scene because it is hilariously choreographed to be legitimately a wrestling match. Like he's doing like like calling up old tie ups. He he does an F five on some guy. He he gives somebody the Irish whip into the into the bar stand. I was waiting for him to do it. You can't see me. <sighs> Boo. John Cena's parents weren't born yet. <laughs> you know, if we're going WWE, I I want to see some of my favorite moves, and he had some moves. Oh man, I was ready for him to you know jump off the bar. Jump off. Yeah, I'm surprised we didn't get a nice flying elbow going on here. People's elbow. Mm. But yes, and now we can talk about uh, Val Cannon, played by Vince Edwards, who's the the stick-up man for uh, Mary Windsor's character. Yeah. He's he's the one who's actually going to go in with the gun and get, get the money, right? Yeah. Because he's having an affair with her, and he's pretty good in the movie. And I think he has one of the best shots in the movie, him and, him and um, Mary. Mm-hmm. When they're over the lamp and it's, like, underlit. And it's like, this is noir. Oh, yeah. And they're talking about how they're going to betray him. And as soon as, like, the li- he says the line, he's like, how many of them are we going to have to kill? And the light hits in that moment. It's like, oh, 
oh, that is like that is like encapsulates. It's kino. It encapsulates the movie. Oh, it's such a good shot. I mean, even you know when we get to that part where he infiltrates the the den after mm-hmm. you know the heist has been made. And just that shot of him slowly walking in with the rifle. And you're like, oh, shit. It's, it's just like... It's about to go tits up. It's like, you know, we were this close. We were just waiting for Johnny to show up with the cash. And we've been got. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to talk about Johnny's character a little bit. Because Sterling Hayden playing Johnny Clay, that he's our lead, right? Yes. And what do you think of him in the movie? I think he's perfect film noir guy. Mm-hmm. Kind of quiet. You know, he's interesting to look at. He's got, you know, just... That face. He's got that face. He's got the style. And it's like, he doesn't have to say too much. Mm. He just needs to, you know, be the guy waiting for the door to open to, you know... To stick him up. Stick him up, get the cash. And, yeah, I mean, he was just kind of cool in this movie. I mean, it's... We see a little bit of him and Faye. That's his yeah, fiance. That's his, yeah, that's his fiance. So it's like, we see him break that kind of stoic character... Mm-hmm. When he's with Faye, and then, you know, he kind of clicks back into, I'm here for the cash, and solely that. You he know is what, a man on a mission. You know what striked me the most about Clay as a character? Was he didn't seem like the kind of guy who would come up with this 4D chess no. thing. And I think that's kind of what um the filmmakers, you know, the writers, and Kubrick are getting at. Is Johnny Clay is not a mastermind. Mary Windsor is a mastermind. Mm-hmm. Johnny Clay is like the kind of guy who should be sticking up liquor stores. He's the muscle. Yeah, he's like, a, yeah, that's the thing. He's a the thug, mm-hmm. but he's trying to be better. The, the better. He's trying to be the mastermind. And you know, even if he got away with the money, he's not going to be happy with it. No. I mean, let alone seeing him go from, you know, happy to see his girl to, you know, doing the job. And then seeing his soul crushed at the end of the movie. Oh, that ending. Because, I mean... Oh, that ending. You know, I was waiting, like, okay, he's gonna flip his shit. It's gonna happen. And then it's just like, no, he went the opposite. And it's just, you see the heartbreak. And just like, that's it? Yeah. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that happens in a lot of Kubrick movies, is you can plan the perfect thing, but as soon as there's chaos involved, you can't control everything. No. And that's, and that's interesting, because... In this, it's like something so simple. A dog ran out in front of a thing, and the and the driver driving his little suitcase had to turn slightly to mm-hmm. the right, and it knocked the suitcase open, and money splashes out and waves away. And it's just a really well-told noir story. Yeah, because it's nothing that it's, you know, super over-the-top or dramatic, where it's, you know, the, the suitcase blew up, or... You know, it's just something as easy as the the person that's transporting the luggage had to kind of, you know, just take a a quick turn. And, of course, it's sitting on top of all the other suitcases, mm-hmm. not strapped down. Why wouldn't it fall off? Oh, it hit the pavement. The locks broke. Yeah. There goes the money. It, it's very realistic. And, and another thing is, so Sterling Hayden was not going to be the first person to play this role. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think, I think when... Cooper wasn't attached at that point, but originally Frank Sinatra wanted to be, you know, make the movie. He wanted yeah. to star in it. He thought, oh, this will be fun. I can, I can be noir guy. It'll be great. But Kubrick and his um, producer partner basically bought the rights out from under mm-hmm. um, Sinatra because he liked drag his feet on it. Yeah. 
But that moment in the airport, that only works if Sterling Hayden's playing him and not if Sinatra's playing him. Because there's the scene in the airport when he's talking to the attendant and he's like, hey, I have this suitcase. I want to carry it on. Oh, sorry. We can't do that. It's too big. Mm -hmm. You know, but how about this? Uh, we'll cancel your flight and we'll refund you the money free of charge. And he's like, no, no, no. I want it on the plane. If that's Sinatra, Sinatra's charming enough and, you know. He'd sing. Well, he's, yeah, sure. But he's charming and witty enough to where he could definitely play to, I can get them to give me that on the plane. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can do that. Sterling Hayden comes off as, oh, I'm not able to schmooze you because that's not, I'm not that kind of criminal. If this was a thing where you came over and were a dick to me, I can just punch you out. Yeah. But the airplane attendants are not a noir movie. They're just, like, being super nice and, like, oh, what, oh shucks, fella. You know, we're sorry for the inconvenience. And I like that. I like Sterling Hayden in this movie over somebody like Sinatra. Also, yeah. if Sinatra was in this movie, it'd be a totally different movie. Definitely. We'd probably have the whole Rat Pack involved. Would have been interesting. Would but, it? yeah, because, I mean, it's the Rat Pack. It's, it's true. This, yeah, would Dino, this, Sammy. Would, would, this would have been a pre-Ocean's Eleven heist movie for Sinatra then, wouldn't it? I think so. Yeah, because I think Ocean's Eleven came out in, like, 1960 or something like that. I think it came out in the 60s. Yeah, that I don't know off the bat. But, but you know. Yeah, and this movie was also based on a novel. Clean Break that came out in 55 by Lionel White. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to see, you know, is this just, you know, someone's screenplay or is this like an actual book? And I was like, okay, cool. You know, it's based off of somebody's book. And that's almost, you know, the, the title of this movie. Yeah. But I mean, I think the killing is more striking. Oh, yeah. This is back in the day where you can get a movie greenlit if you just had a good enough title. Yeah. What I like famously Friday the Thirteenth only got made because somebody was like, "How have we never made a movie with a name like that?" Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, here, go make the movie mm -hmm. with this. Cause uh, what was the name of the the book it was based off of? Clean Break. Clean Break. It doesn't sound like a like a striking thing you can see in a poster. The killing though, it has that double meaning. There's going to be people dying. Also, these guys are making a, a killing. killing, and. The whole idea of, you know, movies being greenlit on a title, this is a really good title. And people yeah. keep reusing this title. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, a note on the screenplay, because this has one of the weirdest screenplay credits I've seen. Because mm -hmm. it's Stanley Kubrick, screenplay, Jim Thompson, dialogue, and Lionel White, novel based on. Yeah. And I guess how this actually happened... So Stanley Kubrick got the rights from Lionel White and wrote an outline mm -hmm. for it. And then he gave it to Jim Thompson, who was a noir writer, like a pulp writer or whatever, yeah. and said, hey, I have an outline, but I can't write dialogue. Punch it up for me and, you know, do that. But Lionel White, or, uh, Jim Thompson had no idea how a, how a script looked. Yeah. So he wrote it all longhand on legal pad. Huh. And when you would get to set how it was formatted was you had to flip it up yeah like that instead of like reading it like a book yeah so people were really confused about when they saw the script and they're like why is it written like this why is it all like formatted like this this is really wonky yeah why is it handwritten ha why is half of it like handwritten photocopies they're like just do it 
Just it, say the lines. It's Let's fine. get through it. Yeah. And that's kind of the the funny thing, because, you know, we know Kubrick now to be somebody who's so exacting that everything would have to be more or less perfect before he would do something. And in this, he's it feels like he's just kind of like, look, we're just going to push through and we're going to get the fucker made. Yeah. Because that, that's like him at this point, right? This mm-hmm. is his, fuck it, I just want to get something made. Uh, that and it's also a 24-day range. Mm-hmm. So it's probably like, we need to get this done. Mm-hmm. We don't have, uh, or at least Kubrick didn't have the cachet that he did in the rest of his career. Where it's like, well, yeah, you know, if it's going to take forever, that's fine. Yeah. We got the time. That was that was probably post two thousand one or post uh, Clockwork Orange. I, no, post Spartacus. Because after Spartacus, he got like a blank check for the rest of his career. There you go. Yeah, because he did Spartacus in like nineteen sixty, right after Paz of Glory, mm-hmm. and that was his like blank check for the rest of his career. He made so much fucking money off that movie. Yeah. But yeah, like the killing is just a fascinating piece of a fascinating artifact of that era and that director. But um, what what else do we want to jump on to before we uh, move on, I guess? I'm just so taken aback. Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I, I still can't get over it. I love Reservoir Dogs. I've seen Reservoir Dogs on probably the most out of any Tarantino film. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to see how this movie has influenced so many other films and directors. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, like... It is interesting because Reservoir Dogs is a movie that I feel like steals heavily from this. And also, I guess, like, the Japanese movies it's based off of. But, yeah, no, The Killing is, like, really much laying the groundwork for how you do these kind of movies. Yeah, and I'm surprised that I hadn't heard this movie, about this movie before, or it's not a movie that a lot of people talk about. Well, the main reason is because this movie was one of the non-canonical Kubrick movies. That and it also didn't do that well when it came out. It did horribly. And it's and it's crazy to know about the producer's reaction to this movie. So this movie gets released through like United Artisans and or United Artists. Artis- yeah, Artisans is it's like <laughs> S- baking. Something else, you know. <laughs> but they screen the movie for producers and they're like this movie makes no fucking sense mm-hmm. cut it chronologically because it was cut you know how it is in the movie yeah and they were like I'm fucking fine whatever because they don't have clout and they're like whatever as long as we get the movie bought by somebody it'll be fine yeah then they do a test screening with it now cut chronologically and they're like oh this movie's fucking garbage take it <laughs> do it the other way again and then they go back and redo it so now it's cut like it is in the film, but the producers are still like, it still makes no sense. Yeah. Put voiceover in it to have it explain the whole thing. And Kubrick's like, fine. And you notice the voiceover in the movie mm-hmm. is obviously like some ra- local radio announcer. Yeah. Kind of reading off some cue cards, giving information that is the most benign, non-important information for the film. And, uh, you know, listening to that and watching it, I was thinking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you have, you know, the narration over the movie. And I was like, I wonder if Tarantino took, you know, this and put that into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we're kind of, you know, hearing the story as we're seeing it. A little bit. But the thing is with this, Kubrick actively hated the the voiceover. He he hated it. And it was just like, you know, I understand that. But again, just to see, you know, 
how, how much um, Tarantino takes from this. How much, how influential this movie was. Where mm. it was just like, hey, that's really cool, that voiceover. Okay, let me take that. Oh, I like that. So, so you know, this movie that doesn't get talked about a lot. It was critically acclaimed. The critics loved it. Yeah, I think it won a BAFTA. Yeah, so it was liked, but it wasn't... Successful? Yes. Which kind of sucked. Because Kubrick deferred his check for this, mm -hmm. which, again, you got to think about it. He made Fear and Desire with his uncle's money. Mm -hmm. He made uh, Kiss Me Deadly no money. Mm -hmm. He, like, deferred. He had he put all of his own money into it. And then he makes this. And he's so he's made three movies and he's not gotten a single cent out of any of them. Yeah, and that's I'm, rough. And I mean, this the budget on this movie was over three hundred thousand dollars. So it, which is so cheap so even it, for a B picture. For a B picture and the film lost $130,000 and it was just like yikes. Which is fucking crazy cuz I feel like you could make the money back in like drive-thrus if you advertised it at all. Double features. Well, it was on a double bill with um Banditos or whatever. But the yeah, you know, uh, that look in your face yeah, that's why that movie didn't make any money because it was a it was a B picture for a B picture. Yeah, because I was like, I'm like I think I've heard of uh, Banditos before, but I'm like, yeah, that, I can't even think of anyone that would be on the cast. Oh, me neither. And that, but that's like the the thing about um, the movie is the reaction it gets because everyone is like, oh no, this is like a really good movie, but no one shows up and the producer might have had a call shot on this yeah because after they're done screening it you know with the voiceover and everything the producer's like all right uh yeah we'll take it we'll release it in six months or three months or whatever yeah and kubrick and harris the uh, producer are like well did, did you like it what'd you think and he was like it's a movie He was like well well what do you mean like it was it good and he was like no and walks out the door. And I'm like, was that just like the consensus for open audiences was it's a movie. It's a noir film. It's just not very good. Yeah. Because I think it's a pretty good movie. You know, it might not be the greatest noir film ever made. You know, it's not like the Maltese Falcon or no. Sierra, Treasure Sierra Madre. But as a low budget, low budget noir heist film, this is a pretty good movie. Like, I would say this is one of the better noir films I've seen out of, like, this era. It's not prime noir films, but it's, like, late-stage noir. This is really good. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of surprised that you never did, like, a noir movie, a short film. Oh, for, like, my stuff? Yeah. Well, the whole three... Well, I've done noir stuff in movies that I've shot, uh, but the thing is, is doing a straight noir film as like a crime movie and things like that i would need i would need to watch a lot more noir films just because like the visual style is like one thing yeah but to do something more um akin to like the actual story stuff mm -hmm. uh, that's just stuff that's never really got like made any interest to me because it would just be like a crime heist things and i i would know i know that if i started writing one the dialogue would devolve into Look here, she. Stick him up, she. I would. I would. Need I got to, my tummy gone, see? I would need to resurrect Edward G. Robinson to be in my noir films. Or uh, 
Clancy from The Simpsons. Or James Cagney. Or, yes, Cagney. Or, or, again, Clancy Wiggum. Yeah. Maybe Hank Azarian is, uh, is available. Maybe. Or, is it Hank Azarian or Dan Castellaneta who does Clancy Wiggum? I think it's Hank. I think, but both of these guys do so many characters, it's hard to, you know, pinpoint what characters. You have to look at, like, uh, a graph of them in, you know... Yeah, I play this, 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 that. And that's the thing about The Simpsons. Uh, we're going on a tangent. Oh, now. yeah. That's the thing about The Simpsons, right? You know how people say, oh, The Simpsons is going to go on forever or until a you know cast member just finally leaves or quits or dies. Yeah. But the thing is, is I, I think when the guy that played... Um, oh, there was, some, there was somebody in the, in the show that like passed away. It was Mrs. Krabappel. Mrs. Krabappel, yeah. And they were like, oh, that sucks. But they were talking about it. And apparently there was just enough content of that voice actress working on the yeah. show that they were like, well, we can put it into a computer and just have her keep going. Yeah. And I was like, what? So if like, if Homer Simpson, you know, they like dies, mm -hmm. they could reasonably just keep going with like a Homer Simpson computer. Probably. I mean, the show's been going on longer than we've been alive. Yeah. And I don't know if they're still... Yeah, they're still doing new episodes, right? Uh, yeah, it's the longest running TV show of all time. Yeah, because I think someone was saying something about um, uh, the recent Treehouse of Horror. So, yeah, it's over, you know, well over 30 years old. Mm. So, yeah, I, I could see there being enough backlog stuff from, you know, that didn't make it into, you know, current episodes that we have or episodes from the past mm -hmm. where, yeah, you could totally string it together and make it sound organic. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I think at this point, the Simpsons is, is it cancellation proof? Cause the show's gotta be cheap to make, you know, they have like the, the rotating animation team and the animation's not very complicated. They probably have a down pad at this point. The the kids stay the same age. Yeah, it's the same costumes. You the writers just have to come up with a a standard funny script for every episode. Every episode that's only like twenty to thirty minutes long. And also yeah. the other thing is, like the voice actors. I saw that. I think they only get paid like it's like thirty grand or a hundred grand an episode. Like it's not a lot an episode, but it's like uber consistent work and yeah. you know they get royalty checks or whatever which could you imagine you were just like on like the first five seasons of the simpsons doing like guest or bit roles you've probably been getting checks for that forever like yeah. you probably get good money from all those royalty checks for all the simpsons shit i mean i'm currently re-watching i'm doing a binge on mm -hmm. disney plus where i'm re-watching from season one of the simpsons I'm going to see if I can work my way through the new seasons. I've wanted to do that, but the problem with, uh, at least the problem with me, is I really start to feel when the writers started to, like, yeah. fall off. I think it's, like, 9 or 10. Because mm -hmm. I think after that, like, there's still good Simpsons episodes after that. It's just, yeah. like, the consistency started to drop off a little bit. But, man, let me know how far you get. Because I really want to know, because I haven't watched... The Simpsons in so long. I'm only in like season two, so I've got a ways to go. Oh, but season two through nine are fucking gold. Oh, they are, but it's just, it's a lot. I, I watch before I go to sleep, but 
you know, now I'm watching the latest season of Catfish, and I'm just like... Oh, you and your bad reality TV shows. Catfish is so good. You gotta watch it. Oh, God, no. You I... love the drama. Yeah, but I hate reality TV. But Just you know, give it a chance. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a rewatch of Twin Peaks. Or of course I'm, I'm gonna are. try to. I don't know what it is. I love Twin Peaks. I even like, like the weird shit in season two, where it's not like surrealist. It's just like a by-the-numbers uh soap opera and also a little noir in the return you know very but the thing is is i have such an issue getting through the pilot and it might oh i love the pilot well, episode. The pi- well the pilot's good but i don't know why i get like halfway through the pilot episode and i'm like man i really want to take a nap right now oh well, that sounds so good that's just you all the time you want to take a nap exactly and but- how can you disrespect the pilot episode when we have the best character in twin peaks in the pilot Ooh. Wait a minute, there's a lot of great Twin Peaks characters in the This pilot. is the ultimate best character. <sighs> mm, I'm I, trying to think of who's only in the pilot. Is it somebody who's only in the pilot? Yes. Is it the fish in the percolator? No. Damn. Alright, who is it? It's the cool guy doing the dance in the hallway oh at school. Oh my god. I, I That am... legend... That absolute Chad. I am annoyed that in the return we don't get a callback <laughs> to that guy. And I know, and I know, the whole point of the return is David Lynch like thumbing his nose at everyone who's like down for nostalgia TV. Yeah. But that that was the one thing I wanted to happen is just to like see in the background of like one of the like the serious scenes at the diner, and it's the dancing guy, and he just like moonwalks past <laughs> the. The window. Like, he's just been dancing for the last 25 years. But yeah, everyone, I would highly <laughs> recommend Twin Peaks to anyone and early stage Simpsons to anyone. Yes. But The Killing. Killing, um, really good movie. Very good movie. I think it's absolutely still watchable. This isn't one of those 50s movies that aged really poorly or the acting's so wonky. It's it's um really wooden and alien I think this movie still works. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as you where it it does work. It doesn't feel like, ooh, this is, you know, super dated and I can't, you know, understand what they're talking about or why they care about this. It's like, no, you know, you're able to understand the plot points and the plot beats and the characters are interesting. I mean, best scene for me is the WWE match. <laughs> you just really like the action beat. Also it's interesting to see Kubrick do like a Full on fight in a movie. Yeah. Because he was a documentary guy and he shot like um, The Day of the Fight, which is like a short film about a boxer. Uh, and I think Kiss Me Deadly is also about a boxer. But it's just funny to see him shoot a straight up WWE match that we also see again in Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Great, great stuff. Great stuff. Good movies. Um, But yeah, so final thoughts on The Killing. Two thumbs up if you're able to find it. I was able to watch it on Pluto. Pluto. It's also a public domain film. You can find it on its entirety on uh, Wikipedia. And it's the Criterion version. So it's like the 4K upgrade. Speaking of Criterion, it's number 575. Since I know you are a Criterion man, you have so many Criterion DVDs. DVDs, Blu-rays, yeah. Well, the thing is, is Criterion just has like... All the old, weird, random movies I like. Yeah. But yeah, so I would also give this two big thumbs up. I'm very happy with this. I'm happy I I finally got to this Kubrick film. Because you were never going to watch it, were you? Probably not. 
I was probably going to keep this as, like, the one to never be watched, so I can always say I haven't watched all of them. You know, of like, that, like that, that dumb thing, you know, that people do sometimes. But, you know, because it's like, I've seen all of them. I've seen all of the Kubrick movies multiple times. You know, this is my favorite director. Yeah. But I was like, ah, you know, I don't want to watch everyone. I always wanted to have one that I've, I've never seen. So it's like, oh, I can always, like, go back and have a look at it when I want to. Yeah. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe I'll, I'll keep that one on the back burner. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, fucking Dean, stop being a pretentious asshole and just watch the fucking movie. So I'm glad I did this for November. So two big thumbs up on this one. Same. But we end November next week. That's right. November is coming to an end. And this is a surprisingly a film I haven't seen before. Is it? It for, is. For November? For November. And, you know, just you knowing me in general, mm. we're going to be watching Hitchcock. Star- is that? What? Hitch? Oh, is that the one with Anthony Hopkins? Yes, and with uh, Dame Helen Mirren. Oh, okay. And it's about the making of Psycho. Ooh, fancy. With Scarlett Johansson. Oh, does she play Marion Crane? She does. Ah, of course. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're, uh, it's a movie I haven't seen before. I've been excited. We finally found the DVD. That That's yeah. one that I've been trying to watch it forever on streaming services, and it's always been, you either have to rent it or buy it. Mm-hmm. And our one of our go-to places, they had it. Yeah. So we're going to watch it. It's interesting because I remember that movie had a big push where people mm-hmm. are like, oh, Anthony Hopkins, he's playing Alfred Hitchcock. Obviously, he's going to get an Oscar nom. Yeah. And then it, it like didn't happen. Or like the movie like came out and everybody just like forgot about it immediately. Yeah, I, I don't remember the backstory. I also don't remember what year it came out. So it'd be interesting when we're doing the episode to see what Oscars it came out in and what, you know, it kind of had to contend with. Yeah, because I remember people were, like, hyping it up yeah. because Anthony Hopkins, you know, Anthony Hopkins, and mm-hmm. they're like, oh, this is where he finally, you know, gets a best leading actor Oscar, right? Yeah. He's playing... This is such a Hollywood, you know, love letter mm-hmm. movie. He's playing Alfred Hitchcock. It's about the making of Psycho. It has all the casting, blah, blah. It was set up as a prestige drama. Yeah. But uh, if they wanted to listen to that, where can they go? Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Yep. You can find us on our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube, where we released videos every week of our podcast and uh yeah like comment subscribe all that fun stuff but if you wanted to follow us on social media you can go to the film club podcast on instagram where we post daily stories trivia upcoming episodes and our random adventures that we go on and with that we'll see you next week at the film club have a good week everybody 